Welcome to Below Average Gamers, where you never have to worry about our opinions and reviews being bought because not even my parents wanted to pay for me to eat. I'm here with Michael, a.k.a. Mini Santa, and I'm Josh, also known to 289 people on Twitter, which I'm sure half are bots, as Grapple Grapple. How are you doing today, friend, buddy, guy, brother? <laughs> how how you doing, friend? I'm I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Oh, just just fine. You know, it's sweating my face off, and it's only ten o'clock in the morning. I mean, it's cool today compared to like the last two weeks. It still feels like I'm in hell. I don't think it really matters. <laughs> so. I think we just let people know then what we're going to be all about on here. Giving to straightforward, our opinions, not bought and paid for. We're not on anyone's flight list. Some of the opinions might be below average. Below average. Are you used to being told that you're below average? (laughs) (laughs) I've only heard it a couple times. (laughs) Okay, that's good. That's good. You know, (laughs) there's not a trend yet. So, for, for some context about who we are as people and as gamers and everything. What are some stuff that you grew up doing? Like playing like different consoles? Um, as far as like gaming, I grew up primarily playing Xbox. Mm-hmm. Uh just cuz it was what like my older brother owned. So, as such, I wound up playing that. Played like a little bit of like Super Nintendo and like PlayStation 1, but other than that, mostly like 360. Just like everything under the face of the earth on that game or on that console. Uh and then when I was probably about 16, I bought my first laptop. Mm, not 16, 15 or 14. I bought my sixth lap- first laptop, and since then I've been mostly playing games on PC. Nice, nice. Yeah, I didn't play a ton of PC early on. We were mainly... The Genesis was the big one, where I was kind of old enough to first start playing games, being a uh, silly 90s kid. And then we had, like, a Nintendo 64 at one point. PlayStation 1 was definitely, I think, my most played console for, like, the longest time. Just, like, anything from, like, Tekken, Final Fantasy games, all that kind of stuff. And then we've always kind of had a PlayStation. Like, I've always had one. I've had a 1, 2, a 3, a 4. I think I have five PlayStation consoles in this house right now. Which is a little absurd, including my Vita. Because... You know, all Vita owners like to refuse the idea that their console will ever die, like their handheld, but it's dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, and then PC gaming too, like it's kind of on and off. You know, like when I was younger, we'd play Age of Empires on there and all that kind of stuff. And that's where I got the majority of my history from, being a homeschool kid. You know, like I didn't actually do schoolwork, but now I knew Joan of Arc and Genghis Khan were because I played Age of Empires, so it kind of worked out. Age of Empires is the best teacher. It it really is. I know all about, you know, the the, the Tootins. Root Tootin Tutors. <laughs> I'm going to hell for that one. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, you know, I've I've had an Xbox at a couple different times. I had a 360 and then that got uh quote unquote stolen out of my house even though like somebody i knew we might have lived in this house with me at the time took it and sold it for things 
possibly illegal things. So ever since then, I like never really got another 360 because it just left a sour taste in my own mouth with it. And it kind of associated with something bad, but it's, yeah, yeah, no. And now with Game Pass, I don't really see a reason to buy an Xbox if it just have a computer that runs everything. So, but I guess for a little, a little bit more into it here now, we've got here, we've got this top 10 list. We're not doing the top 10 best games of a generation. We're not doing the top 10 games of, you know, Sony of all time or top 10 games of the best gameplay. We're just kind of doing 10 games that we like personally, no bias or anything. Well, personal bias. Yeah. <laughs> personally, I think a lot of other games suck and these ones are good. There's my bias. That That's bias. You know what? I'm biased towards you right now. <laughs> In a good way or a bad way? How would you like me to be? <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to kick this thing off, I think we'll start with your number 10 then. All right. Yeah. So my number 10 is uh, Monster Hunter World. It's a oh. game that <clears throat> I... I didn't know Monster Hunter existed until sometime last year when uh, Josh here introduced me to Monster Hunter World. And uh, I apparently wound up enjoying this game a lot more than he did. You know, sometimes I got stuff to do and that game really wants me to not have stuff to do. <laughs> and game just like wound up being a ton of fun. Um, I think like the way the gameplay is formu formulated in that game leads to very interesting and, like, rewarding gameplay. Because you have to, like... Even though, f like, you have to farm the same monster, but you get these upgrades, and it's, up until the late game, fairly direct as to what you want to be doing for your upgrades. Once you reach, like, the whole weird guiding land stuff in Iceborne, it's a little bit different, but... Uh, and the, the big thing, I think, that really, like, brings that game all the way up to the top is its monster design. Because as you're fighting each monster, they have their set of moves and their AI of how they decide to function. And as you get better and better at fighting them, each one gets more and more. It feels like you're controlling the monster in a way, or like you know what's going to happen, so you can predict everything. Just feels really good to fight them at that point. Yeah, that all that all makes sense. I've definitely felt the same way in that game, where you get to learn what you're hunting more than necessarily... Uh... Just your overall, like, level or your gear determining how easy that game is. It's actually dependent more on you learning each individual target, which I did really like about that game. Yeah, and that that's one of the things that I think so many games nowadays lose. Because so many games wind up just being, like, these gear grind type games where it's just reliant on what equipment you have. And you never really get better at the game. You just deal more damage or have more health or whatever it winds up being. And then I think with that, with Monster Hunter, they've also, the way that weapons and skills on, like, armor works makes the gear selection process and, like, building what set of armor and equipment you're going out with much more interesting to a lot of games, whereas rather than just having your int stat and your dexterity stat and your strength stat or whatever stats they are, you actually have this, like, really intriguing skill system where your armor all contributes different skills and then there's set bonuses so you have to try and like maximize which skills you can get best out of what armor sets 
Yeah, for sure. Um, do you want to talk about Mighty Bojules at all? Mm, I... Do you, do you want no. to talk about it? No? I have one now. I, I never have to worry about it ever again. I have one. How many hours is that? 40? 50? Uh, we're not going to talk about how many lava slots I've killed. Okay. I, I just had to get that jab <laughs> in there. <laughs> Considering you got one after, what, like 70 hours? Yeah, I, I think I have three or four of them. Somewhere around in there. Hashtag blessed. The deco system in that game could use some work. But the rest of it's all really good. Yeah. You could also, like, there could be the upgrade of being able to play the game co-op. That would be sweet. That was the one thing that I never understood about that game and how it turned out with the having to watch a cutscene ahead of time, even though neither of you had seen it yet. Where it's like, you can't go on the same mission and watch the cutscene together and then keep going. I I still don't understand that and how you had to do solo missions. If that game was co-op all the way through like that, I think I could have gotten so many more people to even play that game with us, too. Yeah, that's the thing. I think the game is really good. And for people who actually sit through that and get through the storyline, like the storyline isn't what builds that game. It's how the game feels to play. But the fact that the storyline is true turned into almost like a chore because of how many hoops you have to jump through to actually play with people when it's primarily supposed to be a multiplayer game in a lot of ways really makes it hard to convince someone to come play that game yeah it's it's the most unfriendly to get into multiplayer game i think i've ever played but one of the more rewarding ones to play multiplayer in and just makes it that much more frustrating yeah all right I think that's I think that's good. So what's your number 10? My number 10 is an obscure 2007 game, The Darkness. Which this game's really special to me. It uh, really got me into like more stories in games. Is usually I didn't really pay attention to them. And you know, I was 17 at the time and distracted by other things in life. And I, <laughs> I started playing this game and just this, there's this really cold intro to it that I really got me because it's like it just starts and it's like you're just in a car. You've like just come back from a club and it's like your 21th birthday party. And then somebody tries to assassinate you and then you get possessed by like the darkness in the game, which is like a family curse. And the game's just like nuts at the beginning, which is like kind of cool, right? Unlike starting in a wagon and something like Skyrim where it's just like, hello, generic adventurer. How are you doing today? You know, it's kind of cool. Um, the the big thing that I really I remember about this game is it has a really nice dark atmosphere to it, but has like some little hopeful things going on. And then they rip them away and it makes it that much more impactful. It's so like you're like when your girlfriend in the game ends up getting killed in front of you and you're like, you feel like that's kind of the only piece of humanity that this character has in the game. And then it gets taken away. And it hurt. I yelled at my TV when that happened. I, I am I am proud of that. <laughs> yeah. I just think that game really sticks with me. And it sucks because the franchise never finished. There's two games and the third one never came out. I, I think it was like funding or got cut. People weren't interested in making a third one. Which really sucks because the franchise had a really good story to it. 
they ended up at a cool place and then it just died. But, you know, and it's one of those games too that you think, well, okay, the AI in this game's not the greatest thing in the world and the upgrade system's pretty basic. There's just a lot of basic stuff in it that if they made a third game, they made Modern Console of the Darkness, it would really just stand up to its potential. And I only have it at 10 because it's not a great game. Like, now. If you go play this game now, it's going to be chanky. It's basically like trying to play last... Um, it's basically just like going back and playing um, Shadow of the Colossus now that feels really janky, right? But that game does not sold up now. But then it might have been better. It's, the Darkness is the same thing for me. So it's like, yes, this game's great, but I can't recommend people to play it. So that's why I have it at 10. That's totally fair. I, I get that. So what about you? What you got? Number nine. All right. So so my number nine game. I, I've got a couple of really obscure games on this list. Uh, number nine's the first one. Uh, and my number nine game is Papers, Please. Papers, Please. Explanation, Please. So Papers, Please, for anyone who doesn't know, is a indie game where you play as a border guard of a country. Uh, of a... I, I guess it's a communist country. Technically, it's like a dictatorship. And so you play as a border guard, and throughout the game, each day you have to uh, check passports of everyone trying to get into the country, and you have to either accept or decline them based on a list of criteria. And the criteria changes, so like at the start, you can only let in Aristotskins, which is the country you're from, and then there's different requirements that come in as you go forward so then you'll have like an entry permit that uh, foreigners need to have and it has you have to make sure all the dates lined up and all this stuff and so the gameplay in itself when i looked at it the first time i thought there's no way this game can be interesting you're just like checking paperwork this is a desk job not a video game but the game all puts it together so then the mechanic outside of the checking paperwork and letting people through or out is that you make money based on how many people you get through in a day. And then you have a list of expenses. So you have to like feed your family, pay for your rent, uh, pay for food, all that stuff. And then you get upgrades that you can purchase throughout the game. And so because of that, there's this pressure to push and go faster that isn't necessary you can go as slow as you want you just guarantee one of like the bad endings mm -hmm. and then the game gets into there's some like ethical questions where you have like a couple that comes through and the husband comes through and all of his paperwork's in order and he says can you let my wife through next she's coming next but then the wife is missing a piece of paperwork so you have to either like follow the orders and decline her or make like a different ethical decision and let her through so it just leads to a lot of really interesting stuff like that and just the entire thing around it is just really good and it leads to it displays the feel of what it's trying to be really well and it's just extremely unique. So it gives you a really unique gaming experience that I can't say is similar to any other game that I've played. It's not necessarily the best one, like the best gaming experience I've had, but nothing is like it. Yeah. Uh, it sounds really interesting. This is one I haven't been able to get to yet, but just the moral decision versus your job. And it's like, and having to feed your family, I actually didn't know about that part of it. So I'm going to have to check this one out. This one sounds really interesting. 
All right. What's your number nine? My number nine, I'm giving myself a slot on here to a multiplayer game. One that's a little bit more, you know, family friendly. I put Overcooked 2 as my number nine. I just, there's a really special thing because I'm a guy that's like, was a huge, huge, huge RPG guy. I played Oblivion for like around a thousand hours and I love Final Fantasy and I don't always have time for those games anymore. And Overcooked 2 is just like, for a guy that like has spots of time to play with his family and do something together, Overcooked 2 is perfect because it doesn't matter how much you've played a game. There is a way to play it that works for any skill level, any amount of time you've played a game. And it's such a very nice, simple design with a good amount of depth to it. Especially with Overcooked 2 when they put throwing into the game. I think really made the game go from, this is just like a fun party game like the first one. To, hey, there's like some skill here that you need if you want to four-star all these levels. And four-starring is no joke. I have not finished that game with four-stars yet. Being on a highly coordinated team. And I don't know. There's not like a lot of party games I can think of. Like Overcooked. Or Mario Party. That allow people that also are huge gamers. To get a good challenge out of it. While it's still being a party game. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. I totally understand that. And. I think this is like. Kind of a contextual one. Like I enjoyed Overcooked. But not to the same extent you did. And I think that's because. I didn't necessarily have the situation around me. That. Made a game like that really good. Mm-hmm. Another game that I assume would be like the same sort of way is Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time, which I know you haven't played, but it's kind of similar where you can like divvy up tasks and you have to work together as like a group. Yeah. And that's what I definitely need to put some time into, but like group games like that, that allow for different jobs to be easier than others too, is really on point for me. Dishwashing in Overcooked 2, I swear was put in there. To give somebody an easier job, because hauling dishes back and forth is really easy for like a like an eight year old like I have. So, <laughs> so what's your next one up on your list there? Okay, so this next one <clears throat> is one that I know you're gonna be surprised by being on this list. Oh geez, my number eight slot is Pikmin One. Pikmin One. What? Yeah, so Pikmin One hmm. was a game for the GameCube. Originally came out for the GameCube. And the storyline of the game is you're this ship captain from a distant planet that's landed on Earth. So your spaceship has crash landed on Earth. And when you crash land, all of your ship pieces get scattered over this area. And then you find these little creatures called Pikmin that you have to work with to try and recollect all of your ship parts. So the game, the game mechanics are fairly interesting because you have these Pikmin that you need to help carry things and you have to go out and procure items or objects that will allow you to grow more Pikmin to be able to carry bigger things or do multiple things at once. So there's this interesting, like, almost like RTS type um, design to it that makes this gameplay where you can be doing multiple things at once because you can go and throw pikmin onto something that takes 20 pikmin to carry and then while they're carrying that one back to the ship you can go and take the rest of your pikmin to another area and start cleaning out another area of enemies or starting carrying another thing 
But then if the other Pikmin, if they like walk backwards and encounter an enemy, they'll just all die because the enemy can just kill them. And because you've told them to carry the thing, they won't attack it. But the really incredible thing about this game, and the gameplay itself has gotten better, in my opinion, in the second and third one. Because one of the things that the first one did great is it slowly introduces more types of Pikmin. So you start off with red Pikmin, I'm pretty sure. And red Pikmin are just like your generic ones. And they also happen to be fire immune. In the next area, you'll get blue Pikmin, which are then water immune. And then you get yellow Pikmin, which help you take down like electrical barriers, stuff like that. And can jump really high, so you can actually throw them higher. So you need them to get to higher areas. So it introduces them all kind of like one after the other. And whenever it introduces a Pikmin, it also through their introduction lets you know what they do, which is really cool because it makes the game like feel like it almost doesn't have a tutorial while having one. But the thing that makes the first one stand up compared to the second and third is when you crash land, you get this 30 day time limit. And at the end of 30 days, if you don't have all of your ship parts, you're stranded on the on this planet. You can't get home. So you have a 30-day cap on the campaign to do. And so when you go into a game, a, a day's like half an hour or something like that. I don't know the exact amount of time. But you can start up a day in any of like the six zones once you've unlocked them. And then you have to find all the ship parts in each zone and bring them back. And you have this 30-day cap on it. So it end, it puts an end game into the game that makes the campaign feel extremely compelling and, like, urgent. And is actually, like, the first time you play, fairly hard to hit that 30-day mark. The first yeah. time you play the game. First couple times you play the game. So it just leads to this really interesting gameplay experience where this, this day timer that's on there winds up just adding a ton to the game. And the third game tried to reiterate that, but it was done with a system where you could generate more days. So it didn't really have the same effect because you just got to a point where you had so many days it didn't matter. Yeah, I never knew the first Pikmin had a day timer on it. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. There's not a lot of games that are willing to, like, put a cap and a timer on you anymore and being like, this is how much time you have, figure it out. Yeah, I think a lot of games nowadays try to be, like, almost too user-friendly and don't want to, like, put in features like that because they think it'll alienate, like, a super casual or something like that. But it just winds up making the game experience a little bit worse, I think. I think something like that adds so much to the game. And that game wouldn't make it... It wouldn't have a spot on my list if it wasn't for that daytimer. Yeah, which really speaks a lot to the kind of games you like playing, too, is that you're totally fine having a daytimer and, like, having a cutoff mm -hmm. in a game, so. Now, to go to a, uh, a different area with this. This is one. A classic. A game series that I love way more than I like to admit sometimes, and I need to embrace it. Pokemon Red. The OG, the beginning of an era, and a game that I think really in, ushered in like a really cool era of games. I think Pokemon's really nice because, it, once again, it's one of those things where casual and hardcore have a different way to play it. This game, though, the HMs in it can bite me. 
I hate HMs in Pokemon. Worst idea ever. I have no idea why this was a thing they did. It's like, why do I have to have, like, this, like, roguelike thing going on to where, like, I have to go get, like, or I mean, not roguelike, Metrovania-type thing going on, where I have to go get Cut and Surf and Flash and teach it to my Pokemon so it just has a garbage move that I'm never going to use in battle. I, I still don't understand why those are in the game, but there's a lot of, like, really cool stuff. And back, because this was bef- prior to, like, the big internet age where strategy guides were really common the mystery of Mew and like is Mew in the game and I remember being a kid and just being part of that atmosphere of if you move the truck by by the harbor Mew's there but you have to get like hack the game or trade it like a Pokemon to yourself with Surf and a lot of that mystery around the game really makes it really nostalgic for me I still think the newer Pokemon games don't capture some of the magic that Red had because it wasn't, like, bloated. And some of the newer Pokemon games either get bloated or they get too simple. And I think capturing that balance is really difficult. I, I think the problem recently has definitely aired towards the more the too simple side. I mean, I think for Sword and Shield, they were definitely on the too simple side of that slider. Yeah, and I'm not, like, a hardcore Pokemon guy. I'm not the guy that's, like, out there making sure my stats are correct, and min-maxing. I just like to play those games, get all the legendary stuff, and have fun, usually. And, like, I've been playing, like, a ton of Pokemon Go, and that game has battles in it now. It has raids. There's a lot of min-maxing, but I've just kind of, like, been enjoying playing it, and it's giving me, like, similar feelings. But I do have one anecdote about Red, a classic moment for me. So in Red and Blue... In that era of games, there's an electrical plant that has Zapdos in it. And I watched my brother try to catch Zapdos for, I think, around, like, I don't know, like 30 minutes. Like, he would just, like, try to catch it. If he couldn't get it and he ran out of balls, he would load his game. When I got there, I threw a Pokeball, being, like, a young kid at the time, at Zapdos at full health and caught it. First try. It was, like, the craziest RNG thing of just, like, here's a regular Pokeball, this legendary. Oh, look, it's in the ball. And I remember him, like, throwing down his Game Boy and being like, I'm done. No no more of this. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next up for you? All right. So next up, I have Steven's Sausage Roll. Uh, Steven's Sausage Roll is a puzzle game that I originally found... After playing The Witness. So I played The Witness on PlayStation. And I like... That game was incredible. I played through that game... Like spoiler free. All the way to like 100%ing it. Including the end puzzle. And after beating The Witness... uh, I found a... Interview. An interview with the developer. Talking about this game. Steven Sausage Roll. And... I had a really hard time... Buying this game. Because mm. the creator of The Witness said that this might be the best puzzle game he's ever played. And while I agree now, looking in on it from the outside, that was a very hard thing to accept. Steven Sausage Roll, at its basis, is you are this little polygon that holds a fork. And you can turn and walk straight or backwards. 
and you have to cook these sausages by cooking each of them on all four sections you can cook exactly once. You can't, like, overcook them, and you have to cook each sausage on all four locations. And the mechanics of the game are so simple, because it is just based on this man, hold this dude, guy holding a fork. And the game just uses these mechanics brilliantly. And because of the way it uses this, these mechanics, it'll, it doesn't tell you how to do anything, but instead presents puzzles where you learn how to do something on your own. And that's something that, especially in a puzzle game, to me is just so cool, because it just has this feeling that you're actually figuring out the puzzle. The game's not telling you how to do something and then presenting you a challenge with it. The game's presenting you a challenge and you have to figure out what the mechanic is that solves it. So you wind up having to learn how to like stab sausages, put them on your head to rotate them. Um, you have to learn how to like push yourself off a ledge so that you drop your fork. Cause it's the only way to drop your fork and you have to drop your fork in a couple of the puzzles. And it just leads to this super interesting experience, and it just winds up being a ton of fun. And the difficulty curve of the game is actually extremely good, except for one level. There is one level that is way too early in the game for its difficulty, called the Tower. And that level almost destroyed this game for me. I almost didn't play this game because of how, in my opinion, misplaced this level was. Because it was way harder than anything else you'd been used to at that point in the game. I had a similar experience to The Witness, actually, when it came to a puzzle that almost kicked me out. I never finished, like, the time-based thing in The Witness, like, the final puzzle. But there's a particular one to where the screen's distorted on, like, a weird angle. It's it's pretty far in the game, unlike um, Sausage Roll. But the distortion on it... um. For just the TLDR of this, my girlfriend has, like, pretty crappy vision and has some pretty strong prescription glasses, and I have death perception problems. I couldn't look at it and figure it out because, like, my eyes weren't, like, able to, and I had to solution solve it. Because hmm. it, it, like, it played on a perspective that I couldn't see, which is really funny, and with her, too, it actually ended up leading us to buying a bigger TV because uh, we have a decent-sized room here that it's in, and making it easier to play games. And it turned out to be a net benefit, but yeah, sometimes games do a weird thing, especially in puzzlers, where it's like, is this necessary? Yeah, and like, I'm someone who I've played a lot of puzzle games, and this is the first time that I felt like a game just totally missed the curve on difficulty. Mm -hmm. It just had, like, it had a difficulty curve it was going with, and then suddenly was way harder and really hurt the game because I am, I know a lot of people wouldn't make it through that level. A lot of people would dip out. And I actually, after beating the game, went back and looked into it. And a lot of people did. A lot of people were like, this level was way too hard. I quit on it. Yeah. And that speaks to game design too. There are definitely parts in any type of game, puzzles, RPG shooters, where there's a level where you're like, why is this here right now? This is so early. And having watched you play puzzle games, you're very, very good at them, way better than I am. And for you to get stuck scares me a little bit. So if I get yeah, into this game, like, you might have to be there for me. The The thing is, like, this level, the tower, after beating the game, the level's not even that hard. 
Because the way that your understanding of the game progresses over the course of the game is incredible. So going back to this level, I wouldn't find it that hard. It just took a jump. And the thing is, is it's not even just that it took a jump. It's not like this was just a massive difficulty hike in the game. And then that's where you encounter the harder difficulty. It was just plopped in the middle of easier levels. Before was so much easier and after was so much easier. So it just had this one level that was way more difficult than everything around it. And now at the end of the game, I would see a level like the tower and I would be like, ha, this level's kind of a joke. It's really easy. Like the answer is almost obvious at that point. Mm. But just the difference of it being in the wrong location cost that game a lot. Yeah. All right. What's your number seven? Well, my number seven... I'm not going to go over it too long. People know this kind of game series a lot. But I picked the correct one, unlike what most people would pick. Oblivion, not Skyrim. Skyrim is a game that lost me, despite my 80 hours of play in it. Oblivion, though, has the single best strictly rpg leveling system i've ever experienced in a game and you know me and to let other people out there know when it comes to an rpg versus an adventure game my opinions on it are really odd like i think if you can skill reset in a game and reset your skill points you're no longer an rpg because you don't have to play a role anymore oblivion pigeonholing you into major and minor skills where they dictate how fast you level up and what your level up contains, I think is brilliant. It gives you almost like a D&D &D, uh, style experience to where like, if you don't play your role correctly, you are not going to beat this game very well. Or like in D&D, &D, you'll just die. You know, if you're like a rogue or something and you try casting a spell, well, you're going to suck at it because you're a rogue and you're not supposed to be casting fireball at somebody. And Oblivion captures that mechanic really, really well. Uh, I put, I think over one month, I had played around the 70 to 80 hour mark a week for a month at one point. Because it came out when I was in high school. I really recall buying around, I think it was like 32 energy drinks, a very unhealthy amount. And I drank them that month when I played that game. And I had borrowed the game guide from my buddy. And I came back to him and I put it down in front of him. And said, I'm done. He's like, oh, you're done playing the game? I'm like, no, I'm done. The book's done. He's like, what do you mean the book's done? I'm like, I went through the entire book for Oblivion, and I finished it. There's nothing left. I'm done. You can have it back now. He's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that's got to be one of the most played games of all time. I don't have the PlayStation that I played it on anymore, so I'm not sure of my game timer. But the fact that that game just lets you play a role, and if you stick to it, it just benefits you to do so. That's why I really like it. And with Skyrim cutting out acrobatics and athletics as skills and unarmed, ruined that game for me. It dumbed it down. It made it way too like user-friendly for an RPG. Being able to jump off the surface of water in Oblivion when you max out acrobatics was the most ridiculous anime-looking thing in the world. But it just gave you this amazing reward for sticking to your role. Like, I played that entire game without a weapon one time. I beat that story and never picked up a weapon. I just punched people. 
and jumped off of water and stuff. And that's something you literally can't do in Skyrim without mods. And I don't think mods should make up for your game not being designed as well as another game you've made. Like, I'm all for mods. I think mods are really add a lot to the gaming community. But I don't think they should have to be there to fix someone else's mistake. Mm -hmm. And I definitely understand why people will like Skyrim more. And probably why Skyrim sold better is because it's more friendly. But... As far as hardcore RPGs go, there are almost none out there anymore. And like Dark Souls doesn't count because that's not, that's a gear game. That's all that matters in the game is just your gear and how well you play the game. And it doesn't like force you into a role. And I miss being forced into a role. So that's definitely something I'm looking for. So if anyone out there knows any uh, role playing games that force you to actually play a role, I'm in. So on the list of quote-unquote role-playing games that allow you to do whatever you'd like, we're going to jump to my number six. I'm scared. Don't disappoint me, so, please. <laughs> the number six game on my list is Fable, The Lost Chapters. Um, so this is the first Fable, but it's the re-release that has an extended edition, so it has another um, eight hours, six hours, seven hours of gameplay, casually at least. On the back end of it. And Fable is not a game that locks you into a role at all. Fable, you can do whatever you want. You can buy a house. You can murder townspeople. And then you can go and do whatever you'd like. And you you can do whatever you want. There isn't any super cool RPG elements in it. But the game has a huge amount of nostalgia to me. Because it's, like, it's one of the first adventure rpg games i played and while the game doesn't force you to play a role i find that most people i know who have played the game did play a role in it and when i say that the big thing about this game is there's this good versus evil dichotomy in it so you go and you start the game and you go to your heroes guild and the entire concept of the game is that there's people who can channel this force called will and these people go and train at the Heroes Guild. But once they complete at the Heroes Guild, some of them go from the Heroes Guild and do choose to be evil. And some choose to be good. And most people I know who have played this game played it in a role and decided to either be fully good or be evil or be, like, kind of middling. And the really cool thing about this game is... The way that the good-evil dichotomy actually affects gameplay, because it doesn't affect the storyline that much. There's, like, four or five decisions it affects. After you kill the boss of the base game, you can either uh, take this sword or leave it. And if you take the sword, you have to kill your sister. Um, but the sword winds up being less strong than a sword you can buy for, like, 100,000. So that's a problem in itself, because <laughs> that probably shouldn't be a feature. But that's just more of a balance issue. Uh, and then at the end of the DLC, you get to either put on the bad guy's masks or cast it into the fire. And so, but past that, a lot of storyline things aren't affected by this good slash evil dichotomy. But it is, it impacts the way the world interacts with you. So there's like secrets, like uh, a big, the secrets in the game are primarily done through Silver keys, which allow you to unlock special chests, as well as demon doors, which are these talking doors that will give you a riddle that you have to answer, 
and then come back. So there will be demon doors that require you to be evil or to be good or to commit an act of evil in front of them or to have certain outfits. And the, the good versus evil portion has an impact on that, but it also just has an impact on how people respond to you. If you are good, people will have a positive response to you. People will cheer when you walk into a city. You can get your good and attractiveness slider up high enough that when you enter a city, every NPC in the city falls in love with you. If you're evil, people will cower away from you once you grow evil enough. If you get to the super good portion, you get a halo around your character. If you get to the simple evil portion, you start growing scar, you start growing horns. There's even little things in the game where your character you can die in the game and there's like uh, resurrection potions. So you can basically buy something to resurrect you and that mechanics in the game. But every time you die, your character gets scars. So even if you have the resurrection potions, there's still like this indicator of the deaths that your character suffered, which is just really cool. And while the storyline is kind of meh and the, the combat isn't the best in the world, I think it was really good for its time, in my opinion. But just the way that the world feels alive and how all of these different things work together to build this really interesting world. And it feels like you're a part of it, not just a bystander or not the main character even. Yeah, that makes sense. A similar thing happens. um, I cannot remember if it's Oblivion or Skyrim. I think they might both do it. But if you get um, vampirism and the more you like don't address the fact that you want blood or you start getting more sickly and people react to it is like a similar idea to where like your choices are affecting the things around you and the world reacts to you the game that one of the games that did that um the best for me and this is a topic we can have for another day we can really get into this is dishonored mm-hmm. when the girls that you save is sitting there drawing pictures and the more and more evil you do the darker her drawings get like, that kind of stuff's really cool. And yeah, I remember that about Fable. It's funny, because I haven't played Fable in forever. But I remember the horn thing and the halo thing. I forgot about scars. I forgot that you get scarred when you die in that game. And that's definitely, like, a very unique thing that you do not see very often in games, that kind of detail. Yeah, it's just really interesting. And the game just leads towards being being a lot of fun and getting you really enthralled in it because of all these things. And... I, as someone who generically tends towards being the good guy, I've played both sides at this point. I still tend towards playing the good guy in Fable, just because it's what I prefer. Um, The action that's always the hardest to keep good is sparing Whisper in the arena, because goddamn, that is the worst character I've ever met in a video game, I think ever. She is so annoying, and even when you're trying to be the good guy, you just really want to kill her. I forgot about her, but you just gave me some kind of, like, flashback (laughs) to a bygone era that I thought I had forgotten. (laughs) And I want out. I want out. (laughs) I I don't know if I can do the rest of this list now. What have you done to me? (laughs) Well, on on a a bit of a turn here for my number six on this list. This is a this is a game I could talk about a bit about why this is on here and it has nothing to do with the story. Halo 3. 
I don't know a single thing about Halo lore, nor do I care to know. The campaigns are fine. I've played the first four. But the multiplayer in Halo 3... Is when the... you say the first four, do you mean 1, 2, 3, 4 or 1, 2, 3 ODST? 1, 2, 3, 4. ODST, I okay. played a tiny bit. That's the one that had health bars in it, isn't it? Like, chunky health bars that I get head sections in it? One of them had that and I think multiple of them had it in there. Hmm? I think ODST had it in there, but I think there was another game that had it in there, too. Yeah. I, I didn't... I bounced off that. But 3 is on here just... It's strictly multiplayer. That's the whole reason it's on here. It's local, multiplayer, online, multiplayer, everything. This, to me, was the last multiplayer game shooter that has come out that let anyone win. And I don't know any game that does this anymore. And it's just, by basic game design of, there's no loadouts, everything's on the map, go get it. Which I really liked. And there's some, like, low-skill disparity weapons to where it's just, like, rocket launcher, aim at guy over there, blow him up. You know, or you can just like jump at somebody and just like take them out with you. The gravity hammer, the brood shot, the energy sword, like all these like really strong weapons that aren't necessarily super hard to use, but can be used for other things like rocket jumping, the lunging on the sword, which was all really cool. They kind of balanced the game. Then there's harder to use weapons like sniper rifles, um, the battle rifle, which burst fire. I cannot aim a burst fire weapon. To save my life in any game ever. I need to spray and pray. <laughs> so. I just think the game had a really cool way of. Getting everybody into it. On a base level. And then the customization options in that game. Are some of my favorite memories. Playing a multiplayer game with friends. Drinking Mountain Dew. Eating Taco Bell. You know playing Infected. Or playing Tremors. Which is like where you take the ghosts out. And, like, somebody's, like, the Tremors, like, that really crappy movie Tremors with, like, the worms in it. So, like, people would drive around the ghost and you have to try to get from one end of the map to the other without getting ran over. Like, these kinds of things, I don't know if any game's going to be that fun for me ever again for a multiplayer shooter. And it's the big difference to me with these games now versus then is just you can either pay to win or you play a thousand hours to win. And this, there's no good middle ground to me anymore with multiplayer shooters. And I've bought almost every single Call of Duty as it comes out just to play for fun. Sometimes play the campaigns, but it's just the multiplayer is just not the same thing anymore to me. Yeah, I think loadouts having a massive portion of like your power allotment to players and shooters takes away a lot of that and does make it feel not pay to win, but more so play to win, I think, where you just have to put in a certain amount of time before you can do well in a game but yeah i i have a ton of great memories from halo 3 playing the um just playing multiplayer i have i still have people on like my xbox 360 friends list that i've literally never done anything but play custom games on halo 3 or custom games on reach with them like all the different infected modes things like jenga all that stuff just was so much fun and it just became it became what i feel like arena shooter should have been and I think the concept of allowing people to play how they want has been something that's tried to be done, 
by other games and just nothing's ever really hit the mark on it. Well, enough about franchises long dead. Yes, that's a jab at Halo design with games and the game hey, being delayed. Hey, there's a new one coming out. Did you see the trailer? Yes, I saw Craig in all of his glory. His stonewalled face, which is exactly how everyone felt when they saw the trailer. Like, oh, yay. This looks great. And now it's not coming out till question mark, question mark, question mark. Oops, this looks like a 360 game dot date. So on a more positive note, wow, you're giving it a 360 game. Yeah. Well, now that we're, uh, you know, halfway through this list. Hit me. What's number five? All right. Number five is Heavy Rain. Ooh. So Heavy Rain is... I never... I played PlayStation on PS1 and then didn't touch a PlayStation again till PS4. I bought my PlayStation for probably about two years ago now. I would think it's been about that long. And Heavy Rain is then the first Quantic Dream game I played. And I've played all of them now. It's one of, like, they're probably the best for pure story games. If you're just looking to experience the story and feel like you're a part of it, they probably do it better than any other games. And Detroit's probably, like, on objective basis, a better game than Heavy Rain is. But because it's the first one I played, Heavy Rain has a spot in my heart. A spot in my heart. And the first time I played through it, I role-played the entire game. So beyond just what the characters... Having the different characters and having the options that are available to them. I also devised a personality for them based on what I've seen. And tried to act in that way. So in a lot of cases, I didn't even make the optimal decision. Even though I knew what it was. Just because that was the way I felt the character would have done it. And that being said, doing that round wound me like trying my best to turn that first playthrough into a train wreck. And somehow I wound up on one of the reasonable endings, which still feels wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the game just has a massive amount to it. There's just it's super fun to experience the story and you don't really experience that in the same way from any games besides Heavy Rain and I guess like Until Dawn did it a little bit, but not as well in my opinion. But the game was just really good. Yeah, the Quantum Dream games do such a good job with the decision making. And even if you make a decision, you have to actually execute the decision, which is nice. It's not just like a walking simulator. It's like, oh, I want to like, you know, try to like save my son from the origami killer. And you have to like drive the wrong way on a freeway at one point in that game. And that section is not the easiest section in the world to do. So it's like, yeah, you can actively make the decision to try to do this, but then you need to pass the skill test too which is nice i mean that game is also just artificially harder because the controls suck it's got one of the worst control schemes of a game of all time for sure you're saying you don't like holding trigger to walk no <laughs> i i didn't like it when it came out i still don't like it now it's nice that detroit really the control scheme of detroit never bothered me no not at all but i feel the same way like i played heavy rain on release i bought it release day 
the first time I played it. And I really do think I enjoyed... I enjoyed Heavy Rain more than Detroit, because Detroit didn't push its messaging to one side or the other enough for me. And I think some... Some of the endings could have been more diverse. Like, the ending point could have been a little bit more, you know... In Detroit, they could have split the ending off a little bit better, I think, towards the end of the game. But they're all they're all great games. I know that some of them have been free on like PS Plus. You can get them on PC now, and you know get them on a sale. They're definitely worth playing. Just if you anybody does play Heavy Rain, you got to give that game uh, a bit of a pass for its awful control scheme and the yeah, word Jason being said scheme. a thousand times. Jason. Jason! <laughs> yeah, you just kind of have to accept the control scheme yeah. and move on and accept the rest of that game for what it is. Mm -hmm. Well, now I get to do a story game. One that profoundly actually had an effect on me mentally and kind of actually made me make some life changes, one of which probably helped this podcast even get recorded. And that's What Remains of Edith Fitch. I think this is the most one of the most brave games I have ever played for whoever wrote this story. You can take one topic and roll with it. You can take any kind of issue about, you know, racism and talk about it, drug addiction and talk about it, loss and talk about it. And this game just hit everything in a really precise way that was very respectful. And they did it with metaphors. And I thought that was amazing. The way this game plays out, I think anybody who plays this game that's had any kind of trouble in their life can identify with part of it. You know, and the part that really hit me is, um, without getting into it a crazy amount, this is like light spoiler territory for this game, but I think it's necessary to really express why I like this game so much. There's a particular scene where there's a guy that's an ex-drug addict that's working at a cannery. And he's no longer in that kind of world anymore because he's sober. But he's also working on an assembly line. And that part of his brain just is not being stimulated anymore by substance abuse. And you start playing the game and there's these fish going down a belt. So you have to drag the fish over and then move it up into the blade to cut the fish. And then it goes down the line. You just like keep doing this over and over and over again. And then the narration starts where he talks about his mind wandering. And... The screen slowly folds over to where it's like this story's going on while this little like, I think it's like a little wizard guy going on a quest. And like, I haven't replayed this section very much because of how much it affected me. So I might have a couple details wrong. But he's like going on this little quest with the little wizard. And then it starts taking up part of the cannery, like what's in front of you. And as the story progresses, it takes up more and more of the screen, but you're still moving these fish. But now you're also moving this little wizard and like choosing to like where he's going on his little adventure until it consumes the screen and the cannery is gone. And you get more and more trapped in this delusion. And he starts thinking that he's going to be like the king of this new realm or whatever. And then the thing, the thing that really got me is that I felt that way a lot when working at like jobs before. And just felt trapped on like an assembly line. Whether it really is an assembly line or if it's just like the same monotonous task over and over and over and over again. And if you're a creative person who has also decided to make healthy choices for themselves, like getting away from substances or abusing anything or addiction in general, 
to be in that mode where you just feel like every day is the same and nothing's stimulating you. And in that game, when the delusion takes over and you walk up and there's a throne. And it's talking about all you had to do to be the king of this new world is to put the crown on. And you see the, the throne there and above it's the guillotine. And you lay down on your throne and it drops. And that moment we really realized this guy got so lost because he just didn't know who he was without the drugs anymore. And he just didn't know who he was. And he put his head in the cannery blade. Like, there are times where I've felt that awful. And I've had that much struggle with issues with depression and everything. To where you feel like doing something drastic like that. And I'd never seen a game express it in such a way that I understood what they were talking about. And I may have had to make a conscious decision to not be like that on the assembly line anymore and to go after what I wanted and go after, you know, my ambitions. And it helped a lot. Like the game literally changed my life. You know, I would have never gotten my promotion at work. I wouldn't be a manager at my work anymore. We wouldn't be recording this podcast if it wasn't for that scene. But that thing hit me hard. And there's sections like that through that whole game. And it is a big giant warning for people if they want to play this game, that there was going to be something in that game probably that it hits you hard, you know, but it's good though, right? It's good to like face things like this head on. I think, I don't know. I've never had a game just hit me like a ton of bricks and literally change who I am as a person for playing it. Yeah. I think that's the really interesting thing about this game. This game, like very narrowly missed my top 10, but for every person who's like struggled with something like anything, chances are something in this game is going to relate back to you. Like, something's going to have some sort of effect on you. And that's just... It's incredible how powerful it was when you consider the fact that it is just this... game full of short stories. But some of them are going to hit... Every, each person's going to get hit a little bit differently by them. Yeah, the, the last part of that that... uh I wanted to get in there is that despite us being a uh, Canadian based podcast here, I grew up in Washington and I haven't been back. And I think now in nine years and this game takes place in Washington state. And at the beginning of that game, you walk up to your house and you walk through like the greenery and just like the landscape that looks very Washington. They did a very good job capturing that. And it was like going back to a house that I like never wanted to go back to. And I think that hit me in a really special way that like that game wrecked me for months. And I didn't really realize that until recently when we were talking about, you know, recording something. I really thought about Mike, man, that is just like a house I did not want to go back to. And like I f finished that game. I don't know if I can ever go back, but, you know. I owe those people a lot who made that. That game is a piece of art to me. Yeah. Now that I'm all, you know, sad panda over here, <laughs> what you got next? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So number four, uh, I have Horizon Zero on. And Horizon was a game that when I like when I bought my PlayStation 4, I wasn't even really planning on playing. I went and bought my PlayStation 4, and it was... The game was on sale 
for like half off or something at that time. And I saw it and I was like, this game's supposed to be pretty good. It's probably worth it for the half price and bought a copy. And then it sat on my shelf for like six months. And so when I finally got around to playing this game, this game really blew me away. Because I think the biggest part about the game is it has this extremely interesting concept and world building around it that's presented in a very interesting way. It doesn't necessarily tell you a lot of things, just like at face level. The majority of things for it are shown to you through various things, and the game very much shows you all of the information and what's happened in the past very slowly. And you get all this information and you learn who you are. And it's just really, really interesting and pulls you in and you want to keep learning because it has this weird post-apocalyptic, but there's some remnants of technology left and this culture built around it because some parts of technology the culture doesn't like and some parts they do. And it just pulls you into this idea and it makes the game just absolutely captivating to play. Beyond that, the game winds up having this really interesting puzzle-style combat where you're rewarded immensely for thinking ahead and planning things. As as myself, I'm not someone who necessarily in a lot of games likes to just go in guns a-blazing. That's not really my style. And this game really allowed me to think ahead, use my environment, set up traps, that kind of stuff. And when you can, like, chain monsters through different tripwires and into, like, environmental hazards and use all those to your advantage, it feels like you get a massive, a massive amount of advantage and improvement to your play by thinking ahead. And that was just really cool for me, and it's something that you don't see in a lot of games. Monster Hunter also has it to an extent, but I don't think it even has it to the extent that Horizon does. I think Horizon rewards you for it a lot more. Yeah, I hope it's something to capture in the next game in that series. But Thunder Jaws, the first time you have to fight one of those. And the game's just like, no, you think about how to fight this thing because it's going to rip you apart if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, I don't know. Horizon had a really special spot for me, too. That game was really, really good. It was the first PlayStation 4 game I played that I'm like, wow, I I want more of these games, please, now. And I'm glad that they waited till the next console came out. And I'm hoping there's some good innovation, but I hope they still keep that uh, that feel of making decisions in combat and approaching things methodically. I think they they also... Games have been getting better at this, but something that I think this game did really well is it was it's not an RPG. Like, it's a storyline adventure game. But you get really attached to the character. Like, I don't know about you, but I got really attached to actually the world and the characters that are in the game. And, like, felt invested in the storyline due to that. And that kind of is something that a lot of games miss to me. But this game felt like it really hit it on the head. Yeah, I Aloy, I think, is a great, great main character. And getting more story from her, getting her personality developed over more games... Is only going to be to the franchise's benefit, you know? Like, I want to know more about this world. I want to know more about her and more about, you know, the people around her and the people in the other cities. Like, the game just did a really good job of making interesting characters. All right, what's your number four? 
This game matters to me, man. Because you're my homie. Who's your boy? Dungeon Defenders. <laughs> Original Dungeon Defenders. Because this was the moment where our nerd powers combined. <laughs> what do you think the max amount of characters we played at once between the two of us? Trying to think. What, six, eight? Seven? Yeah, might have been seven. Seven characters, two people. That's how we game in this household. That's how we game. Because... <laughs> Yeah, because when we were leveling, because we were getting to the point where we had Series EV, Huntress, Monk, Squire, Apprentice, um, Summoner. Maybe it was only six. Might have been six. Either way. But I definitely remember a point where we had a total of six characters logged in, like when we were leveling up six characters to be able to swap through them. That's when you know you're a true gamer. One of these kids <laughs> out there. I play Minecraft, and that's the only game I play. I'm a true gamer. It's like, no, man. Six characters, two people. Let's go. <laughs> oh, the franchise is just great. You know, it's it's just a really simple, straight-up tower defense game. It has a good loot grind to it. All the classes matter. Don't have to get into this one a lot. It's on here because it's got a special place because it's the game that we've really first started gaming together with. And uh, two and three depress me. Two with it just being about man microtransactions. By three, do you mean DDA? Yeah, just. And Dungeon Defenders Awakened that is out but isn't finished at all. And I don't know if that XP glitch where if you play together, one person doesn't get experience unless you go back to the tavern and. It hurts me. We should double check. We should double check if that glitch is gone. I really hope it is. We're going to have to take a look. But yeah, that's just a really cool franchise. Just because, you know. Because you're my boy. You're my boy. So what you got, man? Number three. Number three. Top three. All right. Big games. So number three, I, I actually have two games at my number three. You slot. cheater. And the reason is, okay, both games are from the same developer. And the reason that both games get this spot is extremely similar. Hmm. And even though the games are in story completely unrelated, my head considers them together. And these games are Bastion and Transistor. So these two games, I don't even know when they came out. I played Bastion when I was quite a bit younger as a kid. And Transistor came out after that. I don't know exactly how big the difference was. And the games are, as far as gameplay goes, very different. Um, Bastion is just a hack and slash adventure game where you have different weapon options and you just go through and attack various different types of enemies uh, with your fang repeater or your hammer or your katana, all these different weapons. Uh, and Transistor has this really cool combination of that kind of combat, of just like this walk around and attack type of combat, and turn-based combat where you have this like time freeze mechanic, and you can freeze time and then plan out a turn, and then when you end that, it'll it'll um, execute all the actions you took, and then... 
that goes on a cooldown. So it kind of combines the two in a really interesting way, which is super cool. And the the gameplay in both games is good. But the games as a whole are just what brings it all together. The games have a massive feeling associated with them. They're really good at conveying like the setting and the mood of the game through the soundtrack of both games is absolutely incredible. Um, the world building and the art style is very intentional to convey the feeling and the experience that they wanted to convey through the games. And the games also have one of my favorite ways I've seen to do difficulty in games where as the game goes on, you unlock these, um, in Bastion, they're called idols and in Transistor, they're called, I want to say processes, but I'm pretty sure that's wrong. But basically, you unlock these modifiers that you can turn on, and when you turn on a modifier, the game will get harder. So, for example, like in Bastion, there's one that's, like, double damage from enemies, and there's one that's, like, enemies have more HP, and there's one where, like, you move slower, and increases your XP rewards, so you actually get a reward for playing on the harder difficulty. And the games, when you play them without any idols on, without any of these things on, are fairly accessible, but when you turn all of the effects on, actually get to have a really high difficulty on them. Which I just think is really cool, because it allows for multiple types of people to enjoy the game. Uh, these are these are some games that I, that I, I think I could be in the mood for them. Because Bastion's narrated the whole way through. Both are. Yeah, so... I don't think I was in the right mood. I think when I went to go play it the first time, I think I was playing God of War or Horizon at the time. And I needed to not be that deep into another game when I started that. So now might be the time to pull the trigger on Bastion. Yeah, they're both really good and they both do have a narrator. And one of the things I really like is um, the narrator. It's not just like the story is narrated. The narrator is an active part of the game that interacts with how you act. So if you take damage or if you wind up like fainting or dying, the narrator actually responds to that. And so it feels like it's actually being narrated, not like there's just a whole bunch of pre-scripted lines. And I get that they are still pre-scripted lines, but because they actually change as you change how you, as like your actions change, makes it really interesting. Yeah. I really need to get in on this. I think it'd be right up my alley if I just go into it, you know? All right. What do you got for me? Game's pretty straightforward. Gets talked about quite a bit, so I don't want to go uh, too hard into it. But there's a few things, though, that I feel like it missed. And that's with my number three, the mighty, the powerful God of War. God of War, as someone who played all the games as they came out, for a game to take its main character and have it grow with you over time is really cool. And I think that's something that I really liked with it, because when I first played these games, being a younger guy, they captured a lot of my angst, because <laughs> Kratos had a lot of angst in the first games, and then this game comes out, and now I got kids. And now Kratos has got a kid. And there's the way that game opens of start game, menu disappears, and... You're, you're in that forest and you start cutting the tree down just like nothing cut and the game just like not cutting and just gets you right into it and just having that really nice 
somber opening into just full on the first baller fight really just hooked me. But I think the thing I really appreciate about this game is that the creators realize you can't make old God of War anymore the way they're making it and be taken seriously with that storyline. We're just kind of in a different era of games now. And the fact that as the writer matured and that he his life changed and he made personal life change choices just like Kratos did. Like he's talked about it openly. About he was like a really angry guy and he wasn't like, you know, had the best opinion about things. And he just changed his life and his game changed with him. And that game just feels so fluid through combat in a way that I didn't think that they were going to be able to capture it by changing the camera perspective. Because it's, it's a major change going from over the shoulder from like almost top-down-ish at times in the original God of Wars. And I really appreciated that. But the thing I think a lot of people miss in this game that I wish was talked about more, it's not just Kratos and Atreus' story, it's the one-liners. This game hooked me with the one-liners. Um, my One of my favorite ones is still that he says, Do not mistake my silence for a lack of grief. When referring to... Atreus's mother and it's like it's it's hardcore it's some hardcore stuff to where you can be going through something but you have something else you have to do like you have to keep going and just because he's not sitting there like crying in a corner doesn't mean that he's not grieving and feels pain and it does a good job of capturing like the angst of the earlier games is shown through Atreus in a cool way where he is very emotional and reacts to everything. And you just see his son being like him. And once again, this is one of those things where like we have a different perspective because I have kids and you don't, right? To where like I got something different out of this game probably than you did, but we both enjoyed it like an immense amount. To where just the father-son relationship in that game where you have to realize that you didn't set a good example for this kid. But they need to be better than you. And that's like a line in the game that he says is for him to like be better than him. You know, like be better than I was is a line in that game. And it's like, ouch, right in the fields. No, oh, that game was just the game is so good. And the fact that the story keeps going after you beat the game. I didn't expect that. So I could beat the storyline, you know, now we're just playing the game to go get trophies and work through, like, the maze. And it's just like, oh, there's more story. And Mamir is still talking all the time. Whenever I get in the boat, there's more stories. I'm like, I really encourage, if anybody played that game and was like, I beat the story and put it down, you didn't beat the story. You beat, like, that particular, like, section of the story about, you know, delivering the ashes, not the actual story and lore of God of War. Yeah, I'm just... I want another one. Hit me. Yeah, the the most disappointing thing for me about God of War was when going for the give me God of War 100%, when Momir ran out of stories. It takes forever. It doesn't happen. But damn, is it disappointing when it does. That's That's so sad. That's got to be really demoralizing for finishing that game on that difficulty. I mean, by by the time that happens, you only have, like, a couple things left. 
And you have things where you wouldn't hear the stories anyway. Because you have, like, a couple mm-hmm. Valkyries, maybe the Valkyrie Queen, and, like, artifacts. I guess the artifact hunt, but... Aw, uh, that would... That silence would just be eerie to me. <laughs> I'd be so eerie. Well, we're down to Deuce. Alright. So, my number two game is Hollow Knight. Hold. Hold. My number two game is Hollow Knight. Should we do this together? I guess we can do this together. We we lined up. Um, (laughs) So, I'll start with what I think is, like, the best part about this game to me. Because I imagine we're actually different. The best part of Hollow Knight to me is the way in which this game presents the lore and the world of it. The lore of Hollow Knight is not why you start playing the game. The lore of Hollow Knight is not why I started playing the game. But I think it is why I try why I went for the 100% of that game. Because this lore is presented in this super slow trickle where you have to make a ton of conclusions for yourself. It doesn't spell anything out for you. When you get the like you get the king's brand and Hornet calls you Ghost, and all these different things build together into this really interesting, compelling story where you don't really know what's happening. A lot of the times, even after you beat the game. Yeah, the the story in Hollow Knight is presented in such a way that it feels like a mystery, almost. It's so intriguing. It almost gives me, like... um. Like, Lovecraft vibes, you're not 100% sure, like, what is going on here? And it makes it really, really fun to play, because you just want to know more. But the game never just tells you ever. There's no exposition. The game's not just like, oh, now that you've reached the end of the game, here was our scheme the whole time. The game, like, never does that. I love that about that game. And I think, I think, like, the most powerful moment of that game is the first time you open up the door using the king's brand and you get to descend down into the abyss. Yeah, that section of that game was like amazing. I got so drawn in. I I'm pretty sure once I did that, I wasn't able to put the game down. I'm pretty sure I went from opening up the abyss to the first time to 100%ing in like 2 days. And did nothing else. Yeah, that that game story was amazing. I love the gameplay. The gameplay, I think, is top-notch. And I feel like every single time you die in that game, it's your mistake. Like, things are telegraphed just enough to where you can dodge them. But the end game, I think, they, was a really good idea to take the insane difficulty and throw it in the end game. We're like beating that game and seeing quote unquote the you know the ending, whichever one you get. Like getting an ending is not, I don't think, unachievable for anybody. But I got that platinum trophy and I'm damn proud of it, <laughs> but my thumbs hurt for a week. <laughs> and I broke a controller. It doesn't work as great. There's some drift in my PlayStation controller from platinum in that game. And I really like the fact that they did that though. It's just like Here's all this stuff, and then there's this little area over here 
that if you're a true masochist and you want to get your face beaten in, go over here. Yeah, and I think, like, for that style of game, throwing all of the difficulty into that post-game is such a good idea. And that's coming from someone who, in my opinion, the best boss in that game is actually just optional content. Yeah. And that's the reason, too, um, Celeste. I didn't finish Celeste. Because of the fact that game, and playing with somebody, too, that isn't, like, a huge gamer... They bounced off of it. Like, my girlfriend bounced off of it. She loves playing games. She plays a, quite a bit of games. But Celeste didn't hide a lot of difficulty out of the main quest as much as I thought they should have. Like, the game is really good. Like, the B-sides and C-sides are, like, way harder in the main game. But I just wish the main game, outside of X, the um, uh, accessibility options, was just a little bit easier. Because the way they word accessibility in Celeste kind of made her feel a little off about it and a little demeaning the way that they word it. So, like, she actually didn't want to finish that game. Whereas Hollow Knight, the game did get a little hard for her because I ended up playing it first and you kind of need to play the game all the way through. But she sat there and played the entire game with me just watching it and experiencing the story because she thought it was so interesting. That game was watched by somebody next to me the entire time for, like, I don't know, I probably put like a good 50, 60 hours into the game at least, not including the Pantheon. And she watched the whole thing and loved it. And that speaks a lot to how good that story is, that somebody can just sit there and watch it and be like, that was incredible. Well, it's time. Number one, the cream of the crop, the top of the mountain, the crown. On the light of games that I think, or that someone can just watch and still enjoy, um, I'm going to bring us back a little bit for my number one, back to God of War. Because I know you said that this game missed in some places for you. I don't agree. I think this game is about as perfect as a game can get. I don't know that there's anything that really was a mistake in this game. And the game has some of the best gameplay in that type of game that I think I've experienced on top of just being an incredible story. And I, I think you could 100% just watch God of War and it feels like a movie. And the, lo- the, the things that they made decisions of to bring up the immersion with um, the continuous camera, the fact that when you first launch that game and you go to the main menu and you get all ready to go and you hit play... And the only thing that happens is the text disappears. The only thing that happens is the main menu text disappears because that's just where the game opens. And you see, and then it pans out to Kratos chopping down the tree and then pans behind Kratos and you get this over the shoulder feel, which is very different from old God of War games. The new God of War was the first one I've played, but I've gone back and played God of War 1. And yeah, it's a super different feel. I also think it's part of the reason that made this game so good. I don't think this game would have had the same impact or the same feeling that it did with the top-down camera. I don't think the Balder fight would have stood up to what I think might just be the best boss fight in gaming. Because that boss fight is so in-your-face and so fast and so close quarters that you just 
don't see that anywhere else. And the decision to tell the entire story through storytelling and anecdotes from the characters in the game is such a great way to just pull you into the game beyond the fact that they decided and figured out how to make an NPC that's with you the whole time that doesn't piss you off. Like, that's really hard to do. Atreus is oddly not annoying. And it's... Which, it's really weird. Yeah, like, most NPCs either break immersion or they're annoying. But he's just, like, you want him there. And that's really, really like rare. Like Ellie? Like Ellie? Ellie from The Last of Us? You mean how she doesn't trigger, like, encounters? How she's annoying and breaks immersion? You, you're just gonna go there, are you? We're gonna have that. That's a little uh, teaser for the next one. Michael's <laughs> opinions um. on The Last of Us next time on Below Average Opinions. <laughs> <laughs> and then one other thing with God of War is like beyond everything. I think the way that they did difficulty in that game was so good because I I beat that game once on Give Me a Challenge. And once I played that game on Give Me a Challenge, I was like, okay, I liked this game enough. I want to go back and play it on Give Me God of War. And Give Me God of War has this really weird progression where I, like, the beginning is super hard because you don't have all your tools available to you. And then the middle section of the game winds up getting a lot easier. And then you hit this, like, the post-game content, Nilfheim and Muspelheim. Which are just extremely cool ways of doing the end game. The trials in Muspelheim are super cool as far as how they. It's very similar to the Pantheon in Hollow Knight to an extent, and kind of the concept. And they made it fit into the lore. And then I wish, and this this is probably an unpopular opinion because I know most people didn't like this, I wish Nilfheim was more important. I wish the Nilfheim maze was bigger. I wish I got to spend more time in that area because it was so much fun. So these are the two things that didn't register with me good enough to make God of War my tour one. So Nilfheim should have been two or three times as big. And if they did DLC to make that maze bigger, I would have paid full game retail for it. I loved that maze and the idea of it because it had a lot of the kind of like... uh, some of the puzzles from God of War, the original games, aren't in the new one. So that area made it feel, like, really cool to have, like, a cool, like, death maze in it. And Alfheim, to me, missed the mark. Like, that that area isn't that f- fun when you get into the temple for me. And it's, it's an important area in the game, and it's got to be in the game. I just didn't like that area because all the other ones are so good i think the issue with alfheim is even like going back to 100 percent that game like after beating it alfheim is super linear mm-hmm. and it feels wrong for what the area is because like even um helheim is fairly linear about as linear as um alfheim is but helheim i feel like to me i can i get that because Helheim is supposed to just be the Bridge of the Damned. 
Alfheim's supposed to be a whole world, and there's just nothing in it. Which, I guess I see how that's a little bit of a problem. I just spent very little time in Alfheim. But, honestly, Nilfheim was, I think, my favorite part of that game, looking back. And if I could just have more of that, I would do it. I would play it in a heartbeat, and I would play that for hours on end, and I would love the shit out of it. Yeah. So, one last anecdote here. I'm going to say, if you don't want a spoiler for into this game like end ish you know go go ahead a minute here but when you go back to his house and pick up the chains in that game i did not have that spoiled for me playing the game and that blew my damn mind and that was one of the most <laughs> fun insane like oh shit moments in a game i have ever had and Kudos to them for putting that in there, because that was that was nice. <laughs> well, anything else in God of War, my friend? I think that's it. The game's just so good. Now I'll tell you what the real game best game of all time is. Because, you know, I'll let you finish, but now it's time for the real boomer gamers out here. PlayStation 1 Classic, number one game of all time, best in the series, best RPG, best leveling system ever, Final Fantasy Tactics. I own this game in every way possible. I checked. They have two cell phones sitting here that both have it on there. I have a Vita with it on there. There are three PlayStations to this house that have Final Fantasy Tactics on them, which I had to buy some of them separately. I have so much love for this game because this is the first game that really punched me and said, get good, you scrub. Because as a kid, I had no idea what I was doing in this game when it came out. And I had to, like, figure it out. And then... I went a level deeper and was like, oh, if I just sit here and re-roll soldiers and wait until my stats are high enough, this game gets easier. Oh, if I just sit in one town and max out four job classes before I leave the first area, this game's awesome. I've played this game such an incredibly large amount, and the, the job system, I think, is the best leveling system for a tactical game like this, like, ever. Like, Oblivion being, like, a role-playing game, and that leveling system is amazing. Tactic with jobs to where you can, like, you know, level up a chemist that goes into a priest that goes into another class and another class and another class. And how you can borrow aspects of their training to layer your character out is incredible. It's like, oh, I need a better movement ability on this character, so if I get them in this class, then they'll be better at movement. But if they're more faith-based and this isn't a bravery class, like, it's a bit of a grind if I want this character to get this ability. But it's still possible, but they have to work harder. Which almost has, like, a role-playing aspect to it to where, like, if you're not good at something, it's going to be harder for you. Which is kind of cool, right? The level of bonus content in the game. There is a dungeon in that game that I've talked to, like, six people now about this game in preparation for this that didn't know it was there. There's a 100-floor dungeon that people are just like, there's a 100-floor dungeon in Final Fantasy Tactics? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, and Beowulf's in the game? Yeah. It's like Cloud Strife? Yep, he's in the game too. There's so much secret stuff in this game, and I've done all of it so many times. 
I have beaten Final Fantasy Tactics with everybody being one class in my party with every single one. I just want you to really think about how much time that took when this game is 20 to 30 hours if you like rush through it. Not speed run, but like go through it, right? The story too is probably just one of my favorite stories in a game. Even though it's, I don't think there's like a, an insane amount of depth to it, but it's just got this really nice cohesive story. And the fact that the story feeds into combat with the Zodiac signs, even though like I'm not huge into astrology or anything like that, the Zodiac sign system in that affecting combat and also being the focus of the story to a point too was really cool. Where like your astrological signs actually matter on who you're attacking. Just the geography of the game matters as much as it did. I could talk for like another hour. I could double the length of this bad boy just talking about this game, but I won't. I don't know. Like... I like tactics games. But the problem is, is that I already played the best one on PlayStation 1. So every single time I play one, I'm just like, why am I not just playing Final Fantasy? Am I just being nostalgic? Help me out here. <laughs> I mean, the game's good. Like, I mean, I understand what you're saying with it being the best game of all time. I feel like there's still games that are different enough to justify playing them. So I think just locking yourself out of a genre is probably a bad idea. <laughs> it's it's one of those things, though. It's like, I really like XCOM. Like, what I've played to that game now is really good in my playthrough where I accidentally went somewhere I really think I wasn't supposed to be and fudged my way out of it. It was really sweet. But it, it's so hard to not play tactics. Honestly, talking to you, you should disable the two DLCs and add Long War. And you will enjoy XCOM 2 so much more that way. I'll have to check that out. Just like knowing what you liked from Tactics and stuff like that. Just taking out the two DLCs. And just playing it as Long War 2. You'd probably like it way more. Yeah. I still remember the, the most ridiculous run I did in, in Tactics. Is I wanted to do a how fast can I beat this game after I get out of the first like area. And I walked back and forth, and I had a full party of Lancers in that game, which anyone that's played that game realizes that class takes a minute to get to it. And I maxed their jaw levels out, and then didn't stop for the rest of the game, and went objective, 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 objective. Because Lancers are, bu are broken. And now I want to play Tactics. Can we play Tactics? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and for anyone that wants to just have fun, if you ever go back to play that game, get creative with your name. Because they say it a lot in text-to-dialogue, and it's great. <laughs> I mean, you also have this randomizer you want to try. We're, we're going to have to get a video up of this randomizer. That's going to be nice. <laughs> Alright, you got anything else on Final Fantasy Tactics? I don't know. It's the greatest Final Fantasy ever made. And why play like Final Fantasy VII again for the hundredth time when you just get Cloud in that game? Come on now, people. Well, anything else you want to say about this wonderful top 10 games that prove there were a bunch of below average gamers? Ah, I mean, I think the top 10 was good. I think I got out what I had to say about all mine. That's perfect. So, what do you think? Do you want to tease them? Tease them a little? Some of the, some of the stuff we're thinking about doing next? 
The Last of Us is dog shit. Breath of the Wild is one of the worst games I have ever played because I wanted to love it, but it made me hate it, and there's nothing I could do about it. Well, if for some reason you're still listening after that, bad boy. Uh, so we'll just have all of our any social media links, anything relevant down in the old show notes. Down below. And for me, Josh, a.k.a. Grapple Grapple. And for Michael, the miniest of Santas. Have yourself a below average day. <laughs>